Vilas County, 1969. Arnold and Ginger Hinshaw and their four children move into a long abandoned mansion overlooking West Bay Lake. During renovations to turn the dilapidated house into their dream home, events suddenly start to go very wrong. The family discovers a hidden crawl space in an upstairs bedroom. And in that crawl space, they find a partial human skeleton, mummified, with long black hair still attached to the skull. Afraid of disturbing the skeleton, they leave it in place and seal the wall. But the Hinshaws would soon find out that their troubles were just beginning. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Welcome back, everybody, to another episode and another tale from America's scary land. We're going ghost hunting this week, Mick. Let's hunt some ghosts. Summer Wind Mansion. If you're into the paranormal, if you're into that kind of dark, mysterious realm of Wisconsin history, you probably know... And have heard about Summerwind Mansion way up in Vilas County, about 14 miles from Land O'Lakes. And this is really the, the holy grail of haunted houses in Wisconsin. At least it is now. I think the tide on that might be turning. Um, there's, there's some other locations, I think, that are um, kind of coming up the ladder a little bit and seem to be maybe a little more popular um, when, when you're talking about haunted locations in Wisconsin, but I would say for still for right now, and for really the last generation or so, longer, two generations, Summerwind Mansion in Vilas County is the king of all haunted locations in Wisconsin. I am sympathetic a little bit to claims that I think initially sound outlandish, uh, because I, I, you know, I myself have have had experiences doing investigations. I've had experiences in my own life. You know, we'll talk about what's been going on in summer. When what about you, Mick? Any any kind of uh, of ghostly encounters that you've had in your life? Honestly, I I regret the fact that I haven't. And I mean, I've been told 
understandably that I'm a bit of a cynic or a skeptic, I guess. But as the years have gone on, I'm even all that kind of belief system, I've become a lot more apparent. There's even theories that the spirits are possibly extraterrestrials coming through portals and stuff like that. I mean, just to say it in the fewest words as possible. Who knows? Our five senses and all that don't necessarily give us all the information. We miss so much as we've talked about already. Who who knows if this stuff is real or not, but I think we're coming to a point in our society where we're starting to appreciate that it's a possibility, whereas it used to be you were just crazy if if you believed it at all. That's why I kind of regret not having had any kind of interaction like that. I my ex fiance definitely did and she believes in it to this day, so I think it happens. I think we are a bit arrogant, I think as a human race, to believe that this stuff is not possible, to believe that there's nothing else other than uh, you know, the realm that we can physically touch and that is tangible to us. You know, and I think that there is a lot of evidence out there to suggest otherwise it's evidence that i don't know that will ever be taken seriously by the uh quote-unquote scientific community but you know i just my own personal self nobody could ever tell me anymore again that whatever we kind of talk about what ghosts are today and i have no idea what they are well even like extrasensory perception i mean there's so many theories as to what they could be right The, the concept of ghost as we've come to know it traditionally, could mean so many other things, just multi-universal beings even. You know, there's so many other possibilities now that we're starting to discover. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm just saying there's the definition of what paranormal is is starting to expand so much that I think we're starting to wrap our minds around it a little more. Let me tell you about the first kind of ghost experience that I've had. I don't know how else to describe it. I don't think I've had any experiences like as a child, you know, and I, this is something that I was always into as a child. I would always do book reports on like ghosts and paranormal stuff as a kid, but I don't believe I ever had any experiences as a child. I and did, you, me, your mom and our other buddy would play with the Ouija board and oh, yeah. somebody was messing with it. I mean, it was real. Were they though? Oh, I think Were so. They? I think it may have been you. My first, I've had a few. I think in, in all of the houses I've lived in here and with in in this area, but before I had before I had you know dipped my toe into investigating or tagged along on investigations, you know which when you're doing those you're kind of seeking it out, you're waiting for it. I think you're opening yourself up more to it. But you've so, got significant experience doing that. Certainly, not do. like one or two. Even, no, right? so there's there's been numerous things during investigations that I um, that I have felt and seen and heard. That there is no explanation for wasn't just gas pains or hunger pains. Or that well, that's always a possibility. Right, but I would certainly count that out for. You've probably learned your body well enough to know right. that. I know. So, so it was. I was living in my apartment in Appleton, and it was a duplex. It was I was in living in the lower of a of an upper lower duplex. It, it, you know, I, and I haven't done any research on the house, but I would assume that it was at one time it was a big farmhouse. And it was probably the only house in the area for a while, right? Like it was an old farmhouse, big house, and probably a lot of land around it. Sure, it's and, a farm. And everything else kind of grew grew up around it eventually. So well, it's a farm, so probably yeah. a lot of fields, right? Right. So so this house, it was an old house while I was living in it. I lived in the lower, two people above me, a couple 
uh, lived above me. Very cool people. It was a, a very casual, normal living environment. Um, there wasn't anything traumatic or weird or anything that happened. But in the house, in my apartment, I would always, maybe I shouldn't say always, I, w- I would get these smells every time. <laughs> but it, it was, So we're back to the gas pants. Yes, we I are. I was right. But it was smells of baking, of you know, baking cookies like you smell when your mom is baking cookies or baking pies or whatever it would be. It would just be this general smell of cooking. And my girlfriend at the time, when she was over, she would smell it too. So it's not just me. And it wasn't, you know, we were smart enough to realize that it was both when the neighbors were home and when they weren't. And it was kind of random parts of the day, like two in the afternoon and two in the morning both when the neighbors were home and when they weren't home. There's no so, way they're baking at this no, time. No, and they were not bakers. And you, were, you would know that you were baking or <laughs> right. not. Too. So nobody, that is a guarantee, was baking in this house. But this this smell, it wasn't constant. It wasn't every day. It was just kind of, you know, it would come. A pleasant and it would aroma, go, though, it, Yeah, obviously. and it would just kind of be this running joke between me and my girlfriend. And then also there was, uh, we heard sounds in the basement. And the basement was just an old creepy basement, right? Worn brick walls, you know, rough rough hewn stone walls. There was nothing down there. I think the landlord kept some tools or something down there. Poorly lit, probably. It wasn't lit at all. It had like an old, well, there was, I guess there was, there was like an old. One, uh, one, one, yeah, one. (laughs) One light bulb that you'd like tug on the on right. the, the little chain to light if it. If you can find it. Yeah. So there was just, there was nothing down there, the old furnace and stuff. But we'd always hear these sounds downstairs, like something dragging on the floor or metal being banged together. It was not, the, it was an old furnace, but it wasn't sounds by the furnace. It wasn't rodents or anything. These are all things that we obviously thought about. But traditionally you know. spooky noises down there. Yes, it was always in the basement. And but chains, I mean, that's what I don't know about chains, but house. like, oh. if you'd think like like a like a big box, like a cardboard box being drug on the floor, or like two pieces of metal like banging together, it, you know, you know, and it didn't last for a long time. We'd hear it periodically, and she would hear it too, you know. So these right. are the two things that always would keep happening. We'd we'd ha- we'd have this smell of baking, and these sounds happening in the basement. So, so they're not even necessarily threatening. No, it, it, we were not, we weren't, there was nothing to be afraid of, but still possible we, evidence that something else. We was weren't going on. scared of these things at all. Not at all. And she wasn't screwing with you because you're easily influenced. No, no. So what happened was, and I don't remember the year, but I remember the day it the day was December 1st and it was, it was Oh five, maybe Oh six. It was, I'll tell you the exact day. Cause I went to see the cult at the rave that night. Nice. So, right? Firewoman. Firewoman, absolutely. So it was December 1st of whatever year the cult was played at the rave on that day. Wow, I'm 05, 06, something like that. It's a good concert. So, and what happened? So before that, maybe a day, I think the day before that, the heat went out in the house. So I call my neighbor. I'm like, hey, John, the heat's out. John was the landlord. He didn't live in the house, but he lived off-site. He lived in Appleton. Great landlord, very... Uh, you know, uh, adherent to our needs whenever something like that happens. He's not listening. You don't have to say that. No, he, he was great. I, I, I liked him a lot. So, I don't know, within like an hour, he had somebody at the house. He had like his own guy, you know, that would always be on call and was always there for him. So he was there in like an hour, and he's downstairs. And to get into my house, 
So I lived, so you'd go in the back and you'd open the back outside door and then you could either go right downstairs to the basement or you could go up three steps and go into my kitchen. But I had my own lock on a door. So each floor had its own entry. Yes. Okay. Yes. So he was down in the basement. He's fixing the furnace, whatever. He comes up and he tells me, he's like, hey man, John wanted me to take care of a couple other things while I was here, but I just got, I just got called out again. I have to leave. I'm going to come back either today or tomorrow. I got my stuff down there yet. I'm going to come back and pick that up and fix these other things that John wanted wanted me to take care of. I'm like, yeah, good. No problem. How long ago was this again? Uh, it was like in 06, 05. So it was a while like ago. It you was remember, a while ago. You I remember, remember this vividly. I could, it could have happened this morning, dude. No kidding. So that was the day before. So he leaves. The furnace is fixed. He left a bunch of his stuff there, though. So the next morning, I'm in bed. I wake up. And I'm getting woken up to noises in my kitchen. And I, I swear to God, dude. And your girlfriend is... She, oh, so at this time, we're broken up. Oh. So we're still kind of friendly. She would show up every now and again. But it wasn't her. She was not around. So I, I was woken up to what sounded very much like somebody doing dishes in my kitchen. Like water running. And you're living there by yourself. Yeah, I'm here by myself. In that floor. Yes. My water's running. I can hear dishes clanging in my kitchen. I'm like, what? I just, I just got a shiver. Just So I, I look at the clock. It's 5.30 in the morning. So I hear this stuff in my kitchen, and I'm like frozen. I'm like, what the hell is going on in my kitchen? And so then that, that sound kind of like dissipates, right? It goes away. I'm still laying in my bed because I'm, I'm just off of the kitchen, my bedroom. And it was it was a three bedroom lower. It was a nice spacious place. Your bedroom's right off the kitchen. Well, it was so it was three bedrooms, but one of the bedrooms was really small. It was like a little kids' room, but that's the room that I slept in because it was it had two registers in it and it was like super warm. <laughs> so that's the room that I and that, the toys that were in there. The toys so were in there. That's where I felt great. Well, so and that happened to be like right off the, the the kitchen, which is weird. So I hear this stuff in the kitchen. I'm like, what the hell is going on? So that sound dis that sound dissipates it goes away i'm kind of scared to move in my bed and then i start hearing the, the the shit downstairs right stuff moving and then i'm thinking oh good the heat guy came and he's picking his stuff up that he left but then i'm like he's making a lot of noise down there and there's stuff banging around i'm like dude it's 5 30 in the freaking morning you know settle down a little bit so he's down there getting his stuff that sound goes away i'm thinking good he you know he went back out to his truck he left whatever that sound goes away, and like a minute later, I start hearing the damn noise in my kitchen again. I'm hearing water running. I'm hearing dishes clanking, and I'm like, what the hell is this guy doing in my kitchen? Doing freaking dishes, right? So then I'm like, that's it. And I get up. And He's I a whip, neat freak. And I whip the door open to, to the kitchen, and of course, nothing is there. Nobody's there. But the dishes are clean, so I was no, pretty happy. They weren't. Oh. Nobody did the dishes. Damn. They're still there, dirty as ever. So now I'm like, what? the hell was i just hearing so the other thing about that day is it was that night overnight it was the first snow of the season early winter december 1st first snow so outside it was like two to three inches of fresh fallen snow right so i look outside his truck's not around no signs of tracks there's no tracks anywhere there's no footprints coming to the door and i'm like jesus Christ. And you're so, as cynical as I am about this uh, stuff. No question about it. You've so never had any experiences before this? Other than the smelling every once in a while, no. The, but, the, but I mean, like even before this house, you'd never had any. No. And you're 
you and I are naturally cynical people, just kind of scientific minded and, and kind of question everything. So this isn't something that you've been looking for and hoping for. So for you to have these with, with a sense of cynicism makes it more legitimate in my, in my opinion. Right. So I had no question. I didn't know what was going on. So I had to go to work that morning. So I left about an hour early. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm out of this house this I'm morning. Scared. I'm, I'm getting out of here. I went to work a year, uh, an, an hour early. So I come back for lunch, and it's like noon, 1130, whatever it is. I come back home, and I get into the kitchen. I open my door. I get into the kitchen, and I am just slapped in the face with two smells. One, and it's very it's very cliche to say it. I know this, but it's fucking true. Uh Old, massively old woman perfume. You know, mm. you're 10 years old, you're in church, mm. the old lady walks by you, she's wearing a fur coat, she hits you in the head with a purse, and she just smells like... <laughs> I can't even describe the smell, but I know exactly Chanel what number it is. Five from well, not even that good, right? You know, it some was just this old, spray. stale smell of... Like Febreze and some other crap mixed together. So it was that, and it was baking. <laughs> And those were the two smells. So soon as you walk in, soon as I walk in, so then I turn right around and I go downstairs, and that dude's stuff is still laying all over the place. He was never there. Never, he was never. They never came back to his, get his stuff yet. So it wasn't him there in that morning. So, but his stuff is still there. Stuff was still there. He never was there after he had left initially. So that that was my kind of my first experience, like something. Is happening in my world that I can't see, and that was not done by me. Well, I feel like I'm not listening well enough or understanding the story because it's so bizarre. I can't figure it out to this day. What are we? Thirteen years later, and you never when heard from 05? the oh, from sixteen H- years later, the HVAC guy never. Oh yeah, he came back. He came back eventually, and but fixed I mean, what he needed there was nothing that he did or took away that made you understand. What could have happened no. while he was not there? No, it was no, it was no noise being done by the furnace or anything like that. This was, I have no idea what. what so happened. those pleasant aromas don't come out of the furnace. They certainly don't come out of mine. <laughs> so that you know that was my and I've had some since. I mean we've we've had we know that the house that we live in somebody one of the one of the past owners did die in the house. He passed of cancer and he was on hospice. The current house. So the the current house that I live in now. The, yeah. That you're raising three boys in. Right. And that's nice. you know and there are there that's are comforting. some things that <laughs> some things that both my wife and I have the kids know nothing about. It's nothing scary. Nothing No, at but all. for the record your wife is also the one who, you've had all these paranormal where you've seeked it out she's been with you though yeah time. yeah you guys so, are a duo that so way it, it's just um, for the record you know some of this stuff at summer when is really hard to believe but so is what i just said yeah you know right i'm trying to break it apart with humor and sarcasm and cynicism but yeah some of that stuff just can't be explained so let's talk about summer wind and, and, and i want to go over you know the history of the house and I, the history of a lot of the i think we're going to run down some of the things that went that that have been claimed to happen in the house to see what's going on here, but you know a, a lot of what what's been going on with Summerwind again it's it is the most known as the most haunted house in Wisconsin without a doubt. It was in Life magazine in 1980 as one of the nine most haunted houses in America. In America, yeah. 
it was uh, there was a uh, the Travel Channel. Uh, they had a show called A Haunting. It was kind of an anthology show that they did about different haunted houses. They had an episode about Summer Wind in this. There is all kinds of things written about Summer Wind. There's all kinds of podcast episodes about Summer Wind. We're going to have a follow-up episode with Summer Wind as well. We're going to be talking to probably the, the guy that's known as the foremost expert, I think, on, on the history of Summer Wind and definitely kind of the paranormal uh, aspect of what's been going on at Summer Wind. His name is Craig Naring. There'll be questions after we talk about what we talk about today, without a doubt. So we're going to bring Craig on um, on a later date and try to try to skim through this stuff and, and get more answers to what's well, been going on. Well, having never been there, it'd be nice to have someone who, as you've told me off mic, he has weekend visits where they camp out. Right? He, so they, they're running, they actually, and he can talk obviously about this when he gets here, um, they're running fundraisers. Basically, they have a, they have a dream to rebuild it. And kind of run it as a as a bed and breakfast or a, or a hotel with investors. That would be amazing. And so they run they run fundraisers, and part of this is is they have campouts at the, at the property and kind of ghost investigations and things. And they sell out uh, in minutes. So these are popular <laughs> popular events. And uh, we'll get Craig on to talk more about that. As we mentioned time. last episode, like the Lizzie Borden House as a bed and breakfast. So this is a popular concept that's happening with these types of places look at how popular it is now with no building there you know i'm i'm, right. I'm, I'm sure you've seen if <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast you've probably seen photos of summer wind it's a big hole in the ground now with you know it's kind of the basement and it's all filled in with you know busted up metal and and, and bricks but uh there's two huge ominous looking chimneys that are still standing. So the foundation on and, the, the ground. and the bricks and mortar are there. Yeah. There's a lot of the foundation and and uh, you know kind of the bones of the building that are still um, on the ground, which makes it even a little more mysterious, probably. So the the building that became Summerwind was built initially in 1914 by a guy named James Frank, and it was built as a fishing lodge. And now, not, not much really has been written that I certainly could find about it um, at that time from 1914, 1915-ish. It was originally held as a bed and breakfast called West Bay Lake Fishing Lodge. That's how they're described it. Place to stay. You know, so when you when you think about the Northwoods, this is, again, this is in far north, uh, Vilas County, way up, by the border of the UP. They probably didn't call it a bed and breakfast back then, but it was a lodge. Right, it was everything, everything that I saw is, is it's a fishing lodge. When we're looking in 1914, we're looking at, you know, tourism was being heavily promoted in the area because they wanted that land settled. The loggers wanted to get rid of the land because they didn't have any use for it anymore because it was all cut over. The railroads wanted passengers to bring up there. So... Tourism was really being pumped up north. So fishing, hunting, those kind of lodges and resorts were going up kind of all over the place. You know, when we say fishing lodge, you kind of think of a of a shanty, maybe, or a, a cabin. I think of a bait shop. But, I'm, I'm, yeah, I don't, but I think you actually could stay there. Oh, I think lodge, this, this was lodging. likely a very nice place. Right, and, very, you, and you stayed overnight while you were planning on doing Very nice interiors. 
um, probably a smoking room, you know, I mean, a veranda overlooking the lake. That's the way the lodges were built then. I mean, they they were... A resort. They were a resort. They were catering to um, people coming from down south, Milwaukee, Chicago, to come up there and spend money. So in 1916, this lodge was built, or excuse me, was purchased and converted into a mansion by Robert Patterson Lamont. It was difficult to reach. It was kind of ice. It was directly on the lake, but very poor road conditions. So, I mean, it was very, like, just dirt road is even over-exaggerating. It was just very, really tough to get to, I guess. I think it's difficult to get to today. Right. You know, we're talking nineteen. The conditions are no different. No yeah. question about it. And it was way worse back then. So, you know, the notion of people being up there in the winter time, probably not so much. This right. was a summer home. Obviously, that was built by Robert Lamont. Now, Robert Lamont purchased the property. I'm assuming, I guess it would be my guess, that he incorporated the lodge Who was into he? the home. Robert, so Robert Lamont, what, he lived in Chicago, originally from Detroit, lived in Chicago, very successful businessman, millionaire of the day, 1916. So so he, he was president of the American Steel Foundries Company of Chicago, so he, he was um, a real big wig in the steel industry. And you know, he even became a politician. He, he later on became the Secretary of Commerce in the Hoover administration. You know, I don't know if that makes you a politician. You know, well, he, right. He, he was, was a businessman. Right. Well, I mean, I've seen, him, I've seen him referred to as a politician quite a bit. I That's don't, the wrong word. I, I don't see that. I see no. him as a, a, a very successful businessman. Well respected, obviously, if you're in a position sure, like that. I mean, that, you know, the that's president. That's the point. You know, we're talking about the Depression era. Yeah. You know, so he's, right. you know, Hoover at that time is looking for somebody to stimulate the economy, to stimulate manufacturing and jobs. Right. So, you know, it sounds like a, a, a choice that made sense at the time. Right. Which you know. which says a lot about who this guy was. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and obviously it's not unusual for people from Chicago to come up to the Northwoods of, of Wisconsin for a summer home. I mean, they do that now. It's still Door counties filled with them. The North Woods are filled with people from Chicago. Fibs. Fibs. That's right. We have a word for that. <laughs> Fibs. That's what makes us Wisconsinites. So the Lamonts made this their summer home. And when you build a mansion uh, of that size and that's your summer home, uh, you have a lot of influence. You have a lot of money. Now, we don't know a whole lot about their time at the house. They were there roughly 15 years now, and because they they lived how they did, um, they had servants at the house. They had housemaids. They had cooks. And this is kind of where you first see the claims being made about things not being right in the house. But but even to the size of the house, it was actually built with the servants' quarters attached. Right. I mean, that's how big this place was. It had three chimneys, a large basement, guest quarters, the reason they call it a mansion. So the, the servants were the first ones to really kind of say things aren't right with this house. They would talk about voices. They would see shadow people. And they would talk about, you know, just having a lot of uneasy feelings. And they would tell the Lamonts this. And the Lamonts dismissed it. They didn't, they didn't believe it. They didn't do anything really to take care of it. Not that I know what they could have done but at the time. why would they want to believe it? Right. So, and, you know, obviously they didn't. Uh, have any experiences themselves to believe it. Right. You know, until 
they did. Until they did. You know, one day in the 1930s, and this is one of these kind of specifics that I talked about earlier, is we don't know the year when this actually happened. We just know it was in the 1930s. You know, the legend goes that the family was having dinner in the kitchen, and they started hearing the door in the kitchen that went down to the basement. Servants heard noises first. So the family was in the kitchen eating, and they they saw and heard the, the kitchen door leading to the basement start to shake, like somebody on the other side was trying to get in. And it was shaking and was shaking, and the shaking became so extreme that it was almost coming off of the hinges, and the door eventually just busted open, and somebody was standing there. And it obviously spooked Robert Lamont to the point that he, whether he had a pistol on his person or he had one close to him, he grabbed the pistol and shot at the figure that was standing inside the doorway, and the figure disappeared, and the door shut. Two shots. Two shots. Now, there's discrepancies about what he saw. There's some that say it was a man wearing black. There's some that was saying that it was a woman in a white dress with long black hair. Yeah. Whatever it was, Robert Lamont, according to legend, was scared to death enough to grab his gun and shoot at whatever he saw, and then he saw that thing vanish and the door closed back down. There are pictures that came out even later, much later, decades later, 1970s, I believe, 1980s, when the house was abandoned, that still show bullet holes in the supposed door that this happened in. Now, this incident, you know, we're talking about the Lamonts here, very successful family. This incident apparently scared the Lamonts enough that they bolted out of the house. Like, they just... That, like, I don't know if it was at that moment or what actually happened, but that scared that family enough that they got in their car and they bolted. Anything I've read, they grabbed the most important items they could find just in a quick flee and never to return. They just took off. And they never came back to the house ever. And they left fine art hanging on the walls. They left uh, high So end, many belongings. Yeah. They left high-end furniture in the house. So for whatever happened, they got the hell out of there, and they never came back. And this is a family who didn't believe everything that they were told for 15 years. They were being told that things in that house were not right. They didn't believe it, and it took one incident for them to get out of Dodge. So now, in- interesting, they kept the property for whatever reason. They never came back to the house. But they kept the property. They didn't sell it. And they got numerous offers on the property, but they they refused to sell. And it was just basically sat there. It wasn't necessarily abandoned because we do believe that there were caretakers there. But until, uh, it looks like until Lamont, Robert Lamont passed away in 1948, did they sell the house? Now, there is a discrepancy, again, of when they sold the house. Most of what you see says they sold it in 1948. After he, after uh, Lamont passed away, but there's also reports that they actually sold it in 1941, which would have been about seven years before he passed away. So they sold the property in 1941 or 1948 to a Mr. and Mrs. Kiefer, and they apparently wanted to run it as a resort. You know, obviously resorts, as we said, were were big in that area, and they wanted to to uh, redevelop it as a resort again, kind of back to what. Um, it was before the Lamonts purchased it, uh, but obviously on a much grander scale. And as you said, 
through much of the 30s, I mean, like almost a whole decade, it was basically unused. There might have been people watching over it, but just kind of abandoned. It was unused, um, obviously, by the Lamonts, it was unused. Um, like I said, it does seem that there were caretakers on the property. But again, tourism was still being heavily promoted at this time in the 1940s, so resorts were big sellers then. Which, that's why the fact that it was unused for so long is kind of a... It's very, very interesting. Right, yeah. yeah. So now, within six months after purchasing the house, Mr. Kiefer passes away. Uh, Some say he died in the house. Some say he died at his house, which was uh, not far away of a heart attack. And now Mrs. Kiefer, Lillian Kiefer, is reported to have nothing to do with the house like she doesn't want anything to from do day one with the house from day one she Every, wouldn't even enter the place so she was lotting and she was she the the initial summer one property was a was a massive huge campus you know they had outbuildings and all kinds of things she lotted a lot of that off and basically when she would try to sell the lot that held the house she wouldn't even go in the house. She would basically give the people the keys and just tell them to go look on their own while she stayed outside. She did sell it apparently several times, but every time she sold the lot with the house on it, uh, the buyers kept running into financial trouble. And the house reportedly would keep reverting back to her. Really? Which makes no sense to me. Even after sales. I don't know how that happens. How does a house, if you're selling a house... If the person that buys the house has financial trouble, right. which this apparently happened numerous times. But if they have rights to it. How does the house revert back to the seller? Right. That's that makes no sense to me. I don't, know how that, yeah, like, I don't know how that happens. Whether it's a lemon or not, you bought it, now it's your problem. So she pretty much keeps the house through that time. and through the, the Till the 60s. Through the 1940s to through the 60s, there's not a lot of activity at the house, at least that's documented or reported. People just couldn't afford it if they did, quote unquote, buy it. If they did buy it, and I think people just stopped buying it after a while, and you know, the, the Lillian Kiefer just kept owning it, um, and there's not a lot of reported activity going on with it until recently, in recent years, where there's been an account that's come to light, and this is really intriguing to me, and this comes from a woman. Again, in recent years, and she was in her 90s when she recounted this. And I think you said, Mick, that she was, it turned out she was in the last year of her life when she told this. That's what I read. This story. So she is, I don't know if she uh, lived on West Bay Lake or if she had a summer home there as a child. But she spent time on West Bay Lake uh, as a child. And she was obviously very familiar with the Lamont Mansion. As she knew it at the time, it was not summer wind at that point. Uh, the name Summerwin came much later. So she grew up on West Bay Lake, or at least grew up with a summer home on West Bay Lake, and she recounted this story, and the story goes, you know, like this. Her her name was Emma, and she was a teenager. So we're we're looking, you know, we're looking late 1930s, probably 1940 or so is when this would have taken place. And Emma had a friend, Mary, and, you know, Emma and Mary would take a boat out, like just like a little rowboat, onto West Bay Lake, and they would go fishing. You know, two teenage girls in a little rowboat. They're probably fishing. They're probably doing a little, you know, swimming, tubing, you know, whatever teenage girls do on a, on a pretty calm lake 
up north. So it's like the beginning of a horror flick. Like the beginning of, of every Friday the 13th right. movie. So Emma and Mary, as the tale goes, were out on the lake. They took the boat out and they were fishing. And lo and behold, the sky started to turn dark. <laughs> and a storm was blowing in. It seemed like kind of like a pop-up storm. And obviously living in Wisconsin, we've all seen those before. <laughs> Beautiful summer day. It's sunny out. It's nice. And the sky darkens up. It pours rain on you for 15 minutes. You know, if you don't like Wisconsin weather, just wait 20 minutes. Quote right? Lewis Black. It's 60, it's 30, it's 90, it's 3. How do you people live here? Oh, you drink a lot. Yeah. That's always the cure for everything. Pretty much. Drinking. We're German. That's what we do. So Emma and Mary were on the boat. A storm blows in. The wind is gusting. They're getting pelted with rain. And they're freaking out a little bit, you know, and they're they're worried that the boat, the little rowboat they're in, is going to capsize. Just looking to get to shore to save. They're looking to get to shore. Just to be safety, for safety. So they see a woman on the grounds of what they know to be Lamont Mansion, and they know this to be an abandoned house, an empty house for years. And they see a woman on the shore, and she's wearing a long white dress, with long, flowing blonde hair. And she's waving them in, right? She's like waving to them to come to shore. And she's offering them safety and shelter from this storm that they're worried about capsizing in. So they get control of the boat, and they maneuver it to shore, and the woman is waving them in the house. They follow her, and they go in this, what they think is an abandoned house, and they follow this woman in, and they see the house in pristine condition. There's fine art on the walls. There's a portrait of this woman, a large portrait of this woman with long blonde hair and blue eyes on the wall, along with a lot of other fine art, a lot of other high-end furniture. And this doesn't seem to be an abandoned house at all. It obviously looks lived in. And the woman motions for them to... to to be to feel comfortable and to to feel welcome while she um you know presumably goes up the stairs presumably to get blankets and towels and things to to dry them off and to get warm and they see her as she's going up the stairs dematerialize right in front of their eyes just vanish just vanish gone and then so and they, they were convinced she was real or they thought she was a spirit well no they they thought she was a real person Right. And they see this woman vanish right in front of their eyes, and their jaws drop to the floor, obviously. Right. And their gaze leaves the woman, and it goes to the house, and the house is now back to the abandoned, dilapidated Rundown. state they thought it was in the first place. So now, obviously, they're, they don't know what the hell they just saw. They're freaking out. But they're safe, right? They're inside. They were saved from any kind of accident or any kind of tragedy that might have happened to them on on the lake and so they they wait out the storm which doesn't last long like i said these these pop-up storms don't last more than a few minutes and they when once it's gone they hightail it out of there and they get back on their boat and they go home now imagine this you're 15 year old girl in you know 1940 and that just happened what are you thinking that night i mean that's that's not leaving your mind no like you said it's some kind of delusion but at this was point, it? well, you've never had any kind of thing that like this happen to you, so yeah, it's hard to explain away. I can't even come up with words now, and I usually am not speechless. So, to, 
how did this happen? I've never had any moments or experiences in my life where I've basically just made a complete situation up from out of nowhere with my friend standing right next to me. So uh, how did this 15-year-old impressionable girls explain what happened? I so mean, they both have seen it. Try to wrap your heads around it. It's hard for us. Imagine if you were there. So right. they don't know what they just saw. They don't understand what they just saw. So they do what I think any 15-year-old would do at the time, and they went back. And right. they went back the next day. Probably without mentioning it to anybody else. I'm sure they did you didn't. don't want to come off as crazy. I mean, even, yeah, it's so, just got to be hard to deal with. So they age. get back in their boat, and they go the next day, and they're going to figure out what the hell they just saw. And so they're rowing their boat back on West Bay Lake, and they're going towards the Lamont Mansion. And it's there's no storm this day, right? It's it's sunny out. It's nice out. There's nothing, you know. There there's nothing impeding their way to the mansion. And they and the, and the mansion gets in their sights, and they're looking for that woman again. And lo and behold, there's the woman again, the same woman, looking wearing, just as real, wearing white with long flowing blonde hair. But the difference is now the woman is not waving them in. She's waving them away. Like, go. Go yeah. away. Don't come here. And it wasn't like in a violent way. It was like a warning. It was, it was go like, away. She wasn't threatening. She was saying, this is bad news. Don't come here. Trying to save them, essentially, is how I understood it. So they abide, and they don't go there, and they, they row away. And they find out the next day that there was a caretaker on the property who was basically belligerent and drunk and shot the place up. So, th again, this sounds unbelievable, right? Right. The, this is coming from a 90-some-year-old woman. So something happened to them that day that was so profound that she remembered this and is talking about this 80-plus years later. Right. Yeah, she remembers it that vividly, like, you know, what's the motivation factor there? Is she lying about this? Right, and why? Is she making this up? Who knows? Maybe maybe she saw something and over the, the decades conjured up this story and just and made it more and more, you know, embellished more and more over the years, and then this is, you know, the result. She's basically spreading a rumor to herself, you know? Maybe. It almost kind of sounds like a time warp to me. You know, like, like that house... Like that storm that day somehow like threw them back in time. Right. And there's a woman that lived there, and there's the house, how it was in pristine condition. That happened roughly in 1940, maybe late 1930s, when the house had been abandoned for a number of years, eight to ten years or so. And now, you know, there, there's not a lot of, of documented stuff that goes on in that house. 40s, 50s. 60s because the house isn't for the most part is not lived in you know it looks like Lillian Kiefer owned it throughout that time we mentioned the problems that she had selling the house and you can imagine what was going on with it it was probably deteriorating big time you know that's a lot of Wisconsin winters and that's a lot of dry Wisconsin summers right and this is all wood with nobody keeping it up so it sat basically vacant and unused until the Hinshaw family in 1969, Arnold and Ginger Hinshaw and their four children buy the home.
Now, Arnold owns a construction company, uh, you know, and he sees the potential in this mansion, in this kind of run-down, dilapidated mansion. He sees the potential into kind of bringing that back to its glory. And doing it himself, essentially. I mean, for the most part. Doing a lot of the work himself. And Ginger, his wife, is all is all for it. You know, they 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 are happy buying this kind of fixer-upper. And they're going to put in the love and the time and effort into making it into their dream home. Sounds like it's a beautiful lot of land, as, as difficult as the road was. And it appears that, for the most part, the children were happy with it. They were kind of looking forward to the excursion themselves. Other than their nine-year-old daughter, April, who was not into this at all from the start. The, the children were gingers from a previous marriage, all four of them. So Arnold was their stepfather, but he looked at them as as his children. They looked at him as their father. It was a good marriage. It was a good uh, family dynamic. Happy family. Sure. But uh, Ginger's daughter, April, nine years old, wanted nothing to do with the house. She didn't feel right. She said that, uh, uh, you know, she just knew that she didn't want to be there. It was old. (laughs) It was decrepit. There was no paint on it. Everything was broken. And, you know, she just had a bad feeling from this, from the start. But Arnold and Ginger, this now becomes their project. This now becomes, you know, they're going to put the effort into this to make this their dream home. So they start renovating the home. And, you know, I think just basic maintenance to begin with, you know, painting here and there. And then one time they were painting an upstairs bedroom. And uh, Arnold, it was behind a dresser in a closet. They were painting a closet in an upstairs bedroom. And they ran into this this kind of hidden crawl space. And the crawl space was behind a dresser, kind of behind a built-in dresser. And they pulled this built-in out, and here's this kind of hole in the wall that kind of went back a lot further than it should have. So Arnold sticks his head in there, and he sticks a light, a, a flashlight in there, and he sees what he thinks is some kind of a carcass of an animal. He sees some hair. It looks like a carcass of an animal, but he can't get in there. It's right. It's a crawl space. He's a grown man. He can't fit in there. So they actually wait for their kids to come home, and they ask April, the nine-year-old girl, to kind of make her way. The one who doesn't like the house to begin with. To be the sacrificial lamb. To go. Daddy's too big, and we know you're scared, but we're going to shove you in there anyway. So April. Love you. April goes in this crawl space with a flashlight, makes her way in there. And she just starts screaming. And she comes out as fast as she can, screaming. And she says that she saw a partial human skeleton. A, a, a skull, still with black hair with attached black to it. black hair attached to it. A brown arm and a partial leg. And I'm assuming that brown arm and leg means in, in some kind of a mummified state. Right. So they did what I think anybody would do at the time. Not really. They sealed the wall <laughs> right. back up. I don't know what you would do, to tell you the truth. If this was me, I've, I guess the first thing I do is I call the freaking police. Right. Right? They didn't do that. The thing I don't do is put it back in the wall and is, seal it up. Is seal it up. I think That's that, what I do not do. There was some thought in their mind that they were gonna, they, they didn't want to disturb the body. Uh, right. Okay. From from the the grave that it had been in for obviously quite a long time. If you're concerned about spirits, time. you don't want to mess with them by... You know, it's like digging up a grave or like Indian burial grounds and stuff. You don't mess with it because 
You don't want it, the spirits to be upset. So they sealed it back up, and they didn't tell anybody about it. And I think later on, they kind of recognized their mistake, and they went <laughs> back to find... They went back, and they opened up the crawl space again, and then when they went back, the body was gone. Whether it was... And to this day, they don't necessarily know if it was a human body or if it was an animal. Right. It's a report from April. Obviously, Arnold said he saw what looked like some kind of a carcass, and April comes out running and says it was a partial human skeleton. Well, the skull itself with the long black hair is telling. There's not a lot of animals that could have that same description, obviously. So after this happens, they continue their renovations as they've been doing. But things start to change now. Arnold becomes somewhat disinterested in the house. He doesn't feel like doing it anymore. Uh, Ginger says later that he does uh, kind of walk around and wander around and tinker with things, but he never finishes anything. He just always seems preoccupied with other things, and the house now has become not important, whereas Ginger becomes obsessed with the house. And he's the construction guy. He's a construction guy, and he's the one who thought that it had all this potential, and now he's... Distracted. Completely disinterested. Disinterested, indifferent, yeah. Ginger becomes obsessed with it. She's painting every room... And repainting every room because she can't get the color right. She says that she feels driven or guided by something or some something or some voice that keeps telling her the colors that she's using aren't right. So she paints a room. She looks at it. She doesn't like it. And she paints it again. And she, again, looks at it, doesn't like it. And, and, and for something in her is telling her, that's not right. Paint it over. It's becoming an obsession. It's becoming an obsession. So they're, they're, you know, their priorities are changing here. Ginger is the one that becomes obsessed with doing the renovations of the house. Arnold becomes disinterested and he's prioritizing his time with other things, one of which was just continually playing an organ that he had in the house. It was like an old um, church organ, and he would just play it over and over again, all hours of the night, almost like he was becoming obsessed playing this organ while Ginger was obsessed with renovating the home. So you see personalities are starting to change here. The house is having an effect on Ginger and Arnold. Sounds like The Shining, almost. And it was around this time that they start noticing things happening. You know, now their their personalities are are starting to change. They're both becoming a bit obsessed with different things. Ginger with the house, uh, Arnold with the organ, and Arnold's becoming a little angry, too, his personality. Uh, He's becoming much uh, shorter with the family. The Shining. You're right. You know, and I didn't put that together while doing the research, but I'm I'm getting the Shining. As you're saying, that's what I, and I just saw the movie during quarantine, but yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting all of a sudden. It's just, just kind of eerie anyway. And now Ginger, this is kind of the time where she's seeing things starting to happen. She's seeing chairs move on their own. Windows would open on their own to the point where they had to nail them shut. You know, they had feelings of being watched all the time, feelings of not being alone even when they were alone. Obviously, there's a presence of there's, some sort. At least in their head there is. Right. You know, they're, right. they're, they're hearing footsteps, they're seeing shadows, they hear disembodied voices calling their names. You know, typical typical kind of haunted house stuff. Right. And it could be true. It could just be the power of suggestion. Who knows? But to them, it's real. And it's, it's starting to have a major impact on 
both of the parents, it's, to say the least. It's starting to affect their personalities. Arnold kind of falls further in this kind of dark obsession with the organ that he's, it's just, he withdraws from anything else. He barely talks to the family. He's not active in any other way. He's just... He stops going to work. Obsessed with this organ. He becomes mean. So even though he withdraws from his family, for the most part, when he does address them or speak to them, it's very mean, it's very condescending, it's very demanding. Again, personalities are changing here. Right. He's neglecting them to begin with, but now he's actually turning on them besides. And it gets to the point where he just stops talking to the family completely. Like, they're not around in his mind, right? All right. Ginger said later that he would stare at things that weren't there. He would talk to things that weren't there. You know, and he was becoming tormented by things in the house. Like something had taken him over almost. Right. And and he, he actually wound up losing his business. He stopped going to work. He couldn't. He just couldn't function. He got to the point where he he was so tormented by this house and he was so fixated on the organ that he couldn't function and he lost his business and he eventually lost his marriage well, and his family. I, I, normally when you hear signs of depression, it's people who can't get out of bed. He's obviously in some level of depression, but it, instead of not being able to get out of bed and, and do anything active, he just... His bed is this organ that he just keeps playing and now he's neglecting everybody in his life and everything in his life and he's just, he's gone, essentially. Crazy to think about. So he loses his business, he loses his wife, he loses his family. Understandably, his family left. Ginger and Arnold get a divorce. His wife's kind of afraid of him at this point. So Ginger and the children wind up moving to Canada and they actually never see Arnold again. I mean, he, he's, he's actually gone from their life. You know, from based on what happened in this house. He's gone from their life. They never, after he became disturbed in the house, he did seek, apparently he did seek help. He did seek some kind of uh, therapy, uh, but it didn't work, you know, and, and, and it, uh, it, ended, it ended his marriage. Ginger um, wound up attempting suicide. I mean, th- this is real stuff that happened. Right. It really was a man who went crazy in the, in, in the house. Ginger Whether they really, saw these things or not, it, it caused a major impact on their lives, and uh, it's sad, and it's going to have a major impact on those children for the rest of their lives. It's just I think there were so many bad memories in that house right? and scary memories in that house that he probably reminded them of that and vice versa for him. That they right. just didn't, they, you know, I don't want to, I guess I don't want to speculate on what happened in the marriage about two people that right. we don't know. But, exactly. you know, certainly when you hear Ginger talk about this, uh, that's what happened. You know, he went further and further into um, uh, madness, yeah. was mean to his family and to the point where he just withdrew completely. They tried to help him. It wasn't working. They had to leave. And they wound up moving to Canada. And then some time later, uh, Ginger, to her dismay, found out that her father, Raymond Bober, actually bought the house. So obviously this was not good news to her because they wanted nothing to do with the house anymore. And They're probably somewhat healed and have moved on and maybe dealt with it, and now it's coming back up into their lives. 
So Raymond had, you know, he had ideas of, uh, I think, a grand vision of turning this into a bed and breakfast, and other people did before him. Uh, you know, so he started, again, he started renovations on his own, him and his son. And they were trying to uh, renovate the home, and they were running into all kinds of trouble. Dimensions of the rooms would change. They were trying to cut lumber. You know, and they would they would measure a room, and the dimensions would be one thing, and then they'd go back and they'd measure it the next day, and they'd be off by almost double. You know, again, the windows would open on their own. And when I mean contractors do these measuring, if there's obstacles in the way, apparently the rooms are empty. So to to have measurements be this far off from each other is it's it's inexplicable. They'd have tools go missing. These contractors would account to the point where a lot of these contractors would quit the job. They didn't want anything to do with the place anymore. So, I mean, it was scaring people off left and right. Right. And it, and it came, it, it got to the point where they just couldn't do, they couldn't do the renovations anymore. They couldn't do the work. The contractors that they could get, by the way, a lot right. of the contractors at first wanted nothing to do with the house because they knew the reputation of the house. Before and, anything had happened. Sure. Yeah. And they gave all kinds of excuses of why they couldn't be there or why they couldn't work. And then the contractors that did, show up to work on the house had all these weird experiences problems where they just couldn't do what they were there to do and unexplainable situations so bober you know while he was trying to renovate this house and this is how the house got its name summer wind so according to raymond bober he found again to up to this point the house was just known as lamont mansion and and back in the day when when lamont's owned it they owned it as lilac hills so, according to Raymond Bober, he found a sign or a piece of wood with the name Summerwind on it, kind of at the end of the driveway, buried in like some, you know, some, some leaves and some dirt. And he found it one day and it said Summerwind on it. And that's how this became Summerwind Mansion. But that was much later on. You know, when Lamont was living here, uh, when the Kiefers lived here, even when the Hinshaws lived here, it was not known as Summer Wind. Throughout the history, the incredible history of the building, it was never known as that. Right. So, so Bober had all kinds of trouble uh, renovating it, and and there's there's a whole kind of another history with the house that goes on with Raymond Bober that we're not necessarily going to get into today. Again, as I said, there's going to be a follow up episode with Craig Naring, and we'll talk a little more about it then, but. It gets into hypnosis, and it gets into visions under hypnosis, and um, tales about English explorers, which, you know, I think they just lend themselves. And I know the whole story kind of sounds unbelievable. To, sounds like to a lot a, of speculation, possibly, right? I think when you're getting with Raymond Bober, and you see that he was trying to turn it into a bed and breakfast, he wrote a book. He was trying to gin up uh, interest. There's some of his claims that just, I think they lend themselves more to not being credible. Sensationalizing if right. nothing else. So as I said, there's a whole other part of, of Summer Wind that we'll talk about on our follow-up episode with, with Craig Nearing. Something happened at Summer Wind Mansion at some point in its history. The, the, the Emma story is really intriguing to me. I think that, that really tells me a 90-year-old woman saying 80 years later something that happened, something so profound that she's remembering it that long in life. Something happened to her. You know, and a lot of times where there's smoke, there's fire with a lot of these legends. And, and so there, there's a whole other story of Summer Wind that pertains to 
a female named Lucy who is kind of loosely tied to this property, you know, where she shows up in kind of retellings of stories about it. Nobody really knows who this Lucy person was. There has been, I think, a rock found on the property with the name Lucy on it. And I think there's also been a cross found on the property with the name Lucy on it. And there's some speculation. I don't think there's any factual basis behind any of it. But there's some speculation that there was a female, either a woman or a girl, you hear both in folklore, that is buried on the property, and that person was named Lucy. Now, who this Lucy person was, we don't know. There's stories that it was Robert Lamont's daughter. He never had a daughter named Lucy. There was stories that it was Robert Lamont's wife, and he kind of led a double life, and it was it was actually his other wife that he lived at Summerwind with, but he didn't have a wife named Lucy. His wife's name was Gertrude. He didn't have a daughter named Lucy. He had two daughters, one named Gertrude, one named Dorothy, and he had a son named Robert Lamont Jr. So there's nothing in Lamont's background or in his biography to that, explain who she is. that lends any credence to the name Lucy whatsoever. But you have all these kind of um, uh, outlandish claims about Robert Lamont and this girl named Lucy. All about who he is. None of which is based in fact. None of it. You know, to the point where you know there's stories that he would that he was jealous of the attention that she got and he would keep her shackled in the basement. And it's just it's it's all these kind of outlandish things that I, d- I don't even really want to get into because it kind of besmirches a man's name for just the purpose of trying to justify a legend, you know what I mean? Right. So this gets into what what the hell happened at Summerwind Mansion, Mickey? Right. So what, what, you know, obviously something has happened at Summerwind Mansion. Something, there's enough stories to go around that lends credence to the fact that Summerwind Mansion has got some kind of funked up energy to it. Right, right? Like, like even I mentioned a little earlier, like Indian burial grounds have a lot of those kind of oddities and like the sacred spirits and stuff, and people don't want to mess with that. Theories, as we've become more evolved as as a society, just how paranormal activity can be referred to as ultra-terrestrial, beings visiting from neighboring and alternative universes, or it's just a glimpse into our ability to tap into our extrasensory perception and see things that traditional five senses don't normally see. Those are possibilities. Maybe, maybe... I've heard theories that that extraterrestrials have been guiding us since uh, we inhabited this planet, and possibly these are just, you know, we're starting to see it as evidence that possibly that's how they communicate with us through different energies, maybe even portals into other universes, as I mentioned, or it's just our ability to be to be able to see with this sixth sense these other beings that aren't necessarily in our concrete everyday world. So, I mean, if nothing else, maybe there's just an energy there that causes people to see things they can't, aren't capable of seeing anywhere else they go. I mean, and that's legit, no matter how much you want to spin it, in my opinion, anyways. No, no doubt. And, and I know a lot of people like to bring up the Native American history of the land, as which I think they do in a lot of, uh, I think that's become kind of a mainstay in haunted house kind of explanations. Kind right. of you poltergeist. Know, kind of the poltergeist on, explanation, right. yeah. Um, is, the ground obviously does have a pretty rich native history. It was, you know, historically it was the land of the Sioux, of the Lakota Sioux, um, up until 1745 when they were defeated by the Ojibwe. 
on a you know the the legend is of a of a large battle on Strawberry Island on uh, Flambeau Lake and Lac de Flambeau, which is only about you know, what twenty five miles or so away. So and and we do know from you know archaeological evidence that that battle did take place. We do know that this area has been inhabited by natives for two thousand years. So are there burial mounds there? No question about it. Right. On the grounds of Summerwind, who knows, but all over that place. So if we're going to use that explanation for the haunting of Summerwind, where's all the other hauntings there? Because there's burial right. mounds, likely burial grounds all over Why is it uh, that area. just one lot? Right, right. Yeah. right. I mean, our artifacts prove that this, this was a very rich Native history, as is all of Wisconsin. Right. Really. For, for sure. You know, but, you know, this, this area also a very heavy gangster area, right? We're only 20 miles, 25 miles from Little Bohemia, where the John Dillinger shootout happened. Uh, we're 50 miles from Hurley, which is, a, which is a well-known gangster hideout in the 20s and 30s. And obviously Capone is, is rumored to be up in that area quite a bit as well. So, you know, who knows what kind of, yeah, you know, horrific things happened. So you think spirits or paranormal activity coming from a tragic, horrific incident? Sure. I mean, we, we have no idea what's happened. You right. Know, if that house was abandoned for 40 years, right? what happened there? It's not necessarily always a horrific situation that might cause spirits to exist in an, in a specific area either. But you're alluding to these mobsters and stuff. Possibly it is caused by that, that somebody just in such strife, their spirits just trapped there because of the horrific way that they passed. If it's if it's you know paranormal in regards to spirits at all, right? I, yeah, I don't, maybe it is just the energy, like I right. mentioned. If, but the, you know, there's definitely with all of the stories surrounding this one house, something is going on with that area. You know, is it spirits of dead people? I have no idea. There's an odd energy that you don't get everywhere else for sure. That, know, there's no doubt about that, in my opinion. Sure. And, you know, a lot of the stories, what we have is basically folklore. There's no way to prove this stuff, right? You know, you got you go back to the sourcing of Lamont. There's nothing in his writings or in his, any of his, of his family's writings that say that they saw a spirit come up through their basement door. That's pure legend, you know? Right. And people say, well, they found the bullet holes in the door years later. Well, there's also a story of a caretaker that shot the house up. Years after the Lamonts were gone, how do we know it's not that? Right. And people were coming in and out of that house, squatting in that house in the 80s. How do we know it wasn't shot up then? So, you know, there's no sourcing to to corroborate the Lamont story that they saw. But But the fact that one specific vicinity can have all these stories does, sure. does lead you to believe something goes on there, some kind of energy or... You know, as I keep alluding to, ultra-terrestrial situation is causing these visions that people aren't having somewhere else. I think I think the Lamont sourcing is a big deal because there's also it's it kind of the legends kind of start with him, and not only the fact that he saw a spirit come up through the door, but also the fact that that scared him so much they just they just booked out of there at that moment, right? Again, that's not corroborated anywhere. He left his position in Hoover's cabinet in 1932 which seems to be right about the same time that they left that house. Right. And he then took another position in New York for $100,000 a year. They probably didn't spend a lot of time at Summerwind after that. Right. So is there is there truth 
to the legend that they bolted out of there so quickly and just never returned from that one incident, there's no sourcing for it. There's no documentation. But but again, it, it, like even with stereotypes, and this this might sound bad, but even with stereotypes, there's some kind of foundation there that causes that to happen in the first place. So all these stories coming from this one location that's really tough to get to, as we alluded to with the road and everything, there's got to be some kind of foundation, some kind of basis for all this stuff. So there's got to be something going on, whether it's been documented or not. It's just, it's intriguing to say the least. Sure. I mean, no. when you're talking about early times like this, no documentation is not the be all and right. all. That whether it's true a or lot. Not. Right. Well, yeah. Right. Um, I think another big question I have is Lillian Kiefer. We hear these stories a lot of her. She bought the house from the Lamonts, and then she would try to sell it, but it would always revert back to her, right? Does it, how does that happen? Yeah. But then, you know, the Hinshaws buy the house from her, and then uh, apparently they sold it back to her because Ginger's father bought it from Lillian Kiefer. Right, and then there's question about what did Raymond Bober even ever own the house or not. There are some questions about that. But then when we look further in the future to 1986, when the house was was bought by investors, who did they buy it from? The estate of Lillian Kiefer. So my question is, when did Lillian Kiefer not own this house? Yeah. It seemed like she owned this house. So so Ginger, the, the Hinshaws bought it from Lillian Kiefer and then wound up selling it back to her. And then Raymond Bober bought it from her and then wound up selling it back to her. Yeah, why None did, of this makes any sense. Why did she keep getting it back? Yeah, that's bizarre. So it, it seems like Lillian Kiefer is a big question mark here about what's been going on with that house since the 1940s. Well, she's definitely a part of the foundation of the story. Lillian Kiefer herself has a bit of a history. She obviously ran she ran resorts up there. She ran some kind of gambling rings up there. She got busted for having slot machines, which were illegal then. Now, like, again, there's a there's a big ga- there's a big gangster history right? up there. She, she sounds like kind of a fun lady, though. Right? She, well, listen to this Definitely one. Definitely interesting. She was involved in a... She had an affair with a married man. Okay? And the... Boring. The, the woman who uh, kind of was jilted in this, in this relationship... The victim. Went to Lillian's home, not Summerwind, but her the home that she lived in, shot at Lillian through her front door, thought she had killed Lillian went back to her car and killed herself in Lillian's driveway. So Lillian, Lillian hung with some pretty shady company herself. Right, right. And now we're finding out that she, you know, there's definitely a question about Lillian Kiefer and why did she own this house through all of these decades but yet keep seeming like she was selling it off. Right. Was I, this was, just a rent-to-own thing for her or was she just renting this as a house? And or? when you hear all these accounts that are just, scary horrific just creepy why would you want anything to do with it for so long i mean it's just so weird how it kept falling back into her hands and there's there's so many things about this place that you can't explain without documentation or anything but that that's as bizarre as any of the facts that that we've talked about and remember how she was just supposed to be this kind of scared little lady that didn't want anything to do with the house in the beginning Right. right I don't think that's her personality. Like, sounds like she's a mastermind of a of a house of horrors. I mean, as we alluded to early in the episode, that lightning being the culprit as to why it burned down, but 
it it sure seems like a lot of the townsfolk might have gotten together. Even like people who ran the town, people were in important positions, might have somehow had something to do with the place burning down. Um, there's speculation on that, as as everything else with this this whole story. But even that is just up in the air and just left for interpretation and imagination. So every every turn, there's just some mysterious aspect about this place, even the way it ended up going to the ground. So the house burned down in 1988, and there was a storm that hit. It was on Father's Day of 1988, and there was a storm that hit that day, but apparently, according to reports, there was not too much lightning in that storm. But apparently that storm burned this house down. Right. It hit, the it, entire it, house. hit it with lightning twice. Right. Twice it got hit by lightning. Right. But it burned no, none of the foliage around it. Right? Just the house. Kind of odd. It's kind of odd. So, obviously, there's a question about how the house, you're right, came to its demise. Even that's up in the air. There's speculation that the town board itself burned the house down. That's what I was trying to imply, yeah. Because they were kind of fed up with the the, the gawkers and the people that would come out and hang out on the property just based on the reputation that it had. Right, and you might speculate that it was those people, but it might actually people be the people who were, you know, in charge of the town. Right. So closing thoughts on Summerwind Mansion, Mickey. I would like to go there. I think we mentioned that it's... That, I think that could be a possibility. I, I'd like. I'd just like to check it out because I've never really had a paranormal experience, even along the lines of what you've mentioned. So just... And just with the history and the stories you've heard about this place, it'd just be cool to visit. I mean, I'm one of those thrill seekers when it comes to that kind of stuff. It's an amazing story. Whether it's speculation, apparently there's not much documentation to back it all up. But again, just like with stereotypes, these stories come from somewhere. And maybe Mrs. Kiefer was just a mastermind, as we alluded to. She was, she fooled the whole world, evidently, because it intrigues me to the point, and I'm a bit of a cynic myself, so it makes me think that there's a different possibility there's some kind of weird energy going on, to say the least. I think Mrs. Kiefer is a big part of the story here that's not being told. Because in all the literature about Summerwind, she's a bit part. Yeah. You know, she she was basically the in-between. They mention her name. And between that's... the Lamonts and the, Hinch, and the Hinshaws, and you never really hear much about her after that. She's just an afterthought. But she her name keeps coming up but none of all this, the time. None of this stuff about the house reverting back to her and, and makes any sense that's to me. That's so weird. And she's the one that keeps selling it to everybody, apparently, over the next 40 years. Right. So how did she not own it that whole time? And with all these other owners, why does it keep coming back to her hands? Yeah, it's because I don't think she ever stopped owning it. Right. But, you know, I, I do think, obviously, more research is warranted, and there's a there's a lot of it being done. You know, I don't mean to say that research in the summer wind is not being done, and I know Craig Nairing does some really good work himself. But, you know, I think you're right. I think going going to the property and kind of just kind of being on that land, which something is going on there. But, you know, I, I think we do, we, we need to remember the human aspect of summer wind, even though we're talking about kind of, kind of a supernatural paranormal uh, story here. With you the know, Hinshaws, especially. Uh, Ginger Hinshaw. People have lost their mind, essentially. I mean, Ginger Hinshaw really did try to kill herself. And he. Based on what she went through in this house. And as you said, he, he entered a world of madness. That's, there's no other way to put it, really. This house had an effect on Arnold Hinshaw that lost him his business 
lost his in his family, his wife, and his mind. Yeah. I mean, that is real. Arnold Hinshaw is not even his real name because he doesn't, you know, he hasn't been out there through all these years telling these stories. When you're that far gone, there, I don't believe there's any coming back to any kind of normalcy at that point. I don't know. I don't know what he's been up to these years. I, I don't. I don't know, but I do know that he hasn't partaken in the, the kind of the folklore of sure. Summer Wind. And, and that, Jim, you know, Ar- Arnold Hinshaw is not his name. We do know his name, but out of respect for him, I'm not going to say it. You know, but there, there is a human aspect here that we need to remember. And even for somebody like Robert Lamont, who there's, the, I think his, his, over the coals, his name is, is being used is, uh, as kind of a, of a justification for literally, oh. uh, pardon the pun, a ghost. Right. We don't know who Lucy was. We don't know if there was ever a Lucy on the property, but there's these stories out there that are kind of... Very accusatory. Absolutely. Branding him in a horrible fashion, that it's just unfair. And there's no basis in reality for any of it. Right. So, you know, even and though... those labels don't go away, even if they're inaccurate to begin with. There's a There was a, a, a story written in the 2011 edition of the Kenosha News, which is a newspaper. It's a newspaper... And it kind of tells this story about Robert Lamont um, kind of holding his wife hostage and shackling her in the basement of Summerwind. Doesn't even get his wife's name right. Not Gertrude, not Lucy. He calls her Josie. There's no Josie anywhere that shows up in any biography. And, it, you know, it treats it as fact. There's no fact at all about it. And we need to be more conscious of people today that these stories are ultimately, even though they're about ghosts and they're about, you know, the paranormal, they're about real people too. Right. And, you know, we kind of justify it and and, and we try to justify the hauntings and try to justify our own entertainment. And at the same time, we're dragging a man's name through the mud. Robert Lamont never imprisoned his wife in a basement. He never put her in shackles. He never had a wife named Josie, much less Lucy. Yeah. I think we need to remember the human aspect of these paranormal situations. You know, summer wind affected people when they were alive, and it continues to, unfortunately, affect people even when they're long dead. And I think we need to have a better understanding of that when we're telling these stories. Right. Amen, brother. 